Welcome to the Gamers Change Lives podcast. Play games, create jobs, change lives. This is a show about how to build an esports business from literally anywhere in the world, where each week we showcase the journey of one inspiring esports entrepreneur and learn how they solved a particular problem that everyone will ultimately face. And now, to your host, Tom Leonard. I'm Tom Leonard. I'm the host of the Gamers Change Lives podcast. When it comes to esports, I'm definitely not the expert. I'm more of an explorer. The goal of the podcast is to hear from esports entrepreneurs around the world, to hear their stories on how esports can create jobs and hopefully inspire others to do the same. Our tagline is play games, create jobs, change lives. And today I am honored to have Brad Kirby, Cape Town, South Africa. He's, he's worked in the gaming world for a long time. So we have all kinds of great stories to be looking forward to. Welcome, Brad. Hi, Tom. Thanks very much for having me. I'm, I'm, I'm very honored and love what you're doing here. So uh, thank you. Kindly. Sure. Uh, tell us a little bit about the beginning. Tell us, how did you get started in esports and gaming? I thought, I thought I saw somewhere that you were mentioning an Atari 5200. Is that true? <laughs> uh, that is true, but I actually still uh, have one. But, but sadly, it wasn't my own. It was uh, the Ataris and the early, early Ataris were mostly uh, neighbors and friends. Um, I think my journey started really... Uh, in the arcades, um, I think when I was around uh, seven years old in the early 80s, um, living in South Africa, um, living in a, a fairly violent and, and dangerous uh, neighborhood, um, my world sort of exploded and, and changed the first time I stood on a Coke crate so that I was able to reach the buttons of an asteroid machine. Um, so yeah, I, I absolutely fell in, in, in love with it. Um, I had many interests and many hobbies and played a few sports, but there was nothing that now that I now recognize as the dopamine fix that would give me from playing and, uh, not only playing games, but, um, but watching games. So that was a, a very different environment to, 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 the, to what you find today. Um, not only from a, a gaming perspective and what the facilities and sort of infrastructure that, that, that we had, um, but also the types of people that would hang around uh, those types of arcades. You know, it's, it's, a, it's a much sort of safer environment than it is to sort of play games um, in your home today. So uh, it, was always, um, it was always a desire and a passion to, to be involved within, in the gaming space. You know, uh, I struggled quite quite a bit growing up in South Africa. Um, uh, I struggled almost in a way I felt like I was in a world where I didn't belong. Um, I certainly recognize my white privilege that I had by being able to go to uh, having a, a fairly good education and being able to go to school. Um, but there were questions that I would ask, like, why am I, why are the only white people in our school and in our classes? And, you know, we were told to shut up and don't question those types of things. So the, I, I, not only sort of, I don't want to sit on the race issue, but there were a lot of issues. I, I kind of felt like there was a world where, where I didn't belong. I, I thought differently to everybody else. I acted differently to everybody else. So I, I thought that playing these games and getting involved in these sort of worlds would it, it did a few things not only did it inspire my imagination and and keep me interested in something but it was you know i i believe for a long time that it was an escape from a reality that 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 i was uncomfortable and unhappy with um and it wasn't only it wasn't until i think around my early 20s that um, I, I stood back and, and looked at the history and where I'd come from and looked at the, the skills and abilities that I had had and what had been enhanced from, from gaming. Um, my my hand-eye coordination, my cognitive abilities, my problem-solving skills, um, my determination and perseverance. And also, strangely enough, um, I think one of the things that people don't talk about um, one of the major benefits about playing games is is also learning to lose. Um, so yeah, there were a lot of factors where where I would find that 
being able to slay a dragon in a particular game that many people couldn't do would would make me feel better uh, and and almost empower my my real wa- real life or real world or should i say this perceived real world if you buy into the whole simulation theory i think i think one of the things that you're describing there is something that a lot of people can relate to as far as it it being an escape and um and i also like hearing you talk about the positive things that you think it it, it brought to you as well one of the things i like about your particular background and one of the reasons I was really, really uh, happy to, to have you on the podcast here is that you're coming, you come from esports kind of from a different angle. Your background is more, you're working in media companies, you're working with ISPs and so on, on as the gaming guy and on the gaming side in an organization that wasn't built for gaming. A lot of times we talk here to um, entrepreneurs that are creating tournaments or creating teams and their aspect is always focused on uh, a, a gaming enterprise. And it sounds like you, you came from, um, from media and from tech. And I wanted to kind of dive into that in a little bit in detail, because especially on the media side sure. here, when starting out, sure. and you were talking about... You- look, I, look, I think it's a lot easier today because of the, the money that's being spent. Yes. And it's very easy to, it's very easy to talk about either the money that is being generated within gaming directly or, or within esports or within streaming or the advertising around that. Um, so my, I, I, it's a little bit complicated and I'm wondering how far back I should go. So let's migrate. So we've moved from the arcades. Um, I, I was primarily working within the security industry, either as a first responder or doing bodyguarding, doing close quarters protection. Um, and when I had amassed enough funds together, I bought my first PC. Um, and the only reason that I bought a PC was obviously to be able to play games on from home instead of having to find an arcade or a console or something to play with. And um, I had no qualifications, not taught anything. And it, it, PCs weren't as readily available as they were today. And we, and I'm going back to, this is now to about... Uh, 1988, 89. Um, so I was very self-taught. Um, I had learned uh, Windows back to front. I had learned, we had this wonderful thing came out called uh, the internet and we had these 336K modems. Um, so because I had a level of proficiency um, within PCs, um, the internet started in South Africa and I got a job doing telephonic technical support um, in, for dial-up, for our dial-up users. Um, and being inside the organization, like you say, they weren't set up for gaming. In fact, they weren't even very interested in it. But being an evangelist for it, I never shut up about it. So I was constantly speaking to anybody that I can. What are we, we going to do about gaming? What are we going to do about gaming? How can we get around gaming? And there was never... You know, we didn't have the money to flash at everybody to say, you know, this is where, where, where we can possibly go and this is where, we, where we're going to build it. So we were primarily a, a connectivity business, um, utilizing a lot of influence and speaking to the right people. We eventually did deploy uh, some dedicated servers. I like to say that I deployed the first dedicated servers in South Africa, but the reality is I actually inherited them. Um, I was certainly very instrumental in convincing our suits to do so. Um, but at first, for the first year or so, um, we had uh, subcontracted to a third party, a, an actual studio, um, who helped manage to convince us to, to, to get involved. Can, can I interrupt you there so, just, just for a second? Because what I... I, I constantly. Uh, what I like, like hearing you say is you convinced the suits that it was something to do. Could you describe how you did that? How do you go into an organization that is not, that that's game agnostic, if not worse? How do you how what is it that you you bring t- to their attention that gets you over the finish line and they start paying attention to you? I think something that I learned from from gaming, my perseverance, I, I never shut up about it. Any opportunity that I could, I would pester people and I would try and show them how engaging this world is and some of the cool stuff that can happen around it. And it really was. So we had a, a very exciting, exciting time within the ISP. So how's this for an ambitious statement? 
we wanted to, we knew that content was king. Um, so we had, uh, what we wanted to do is we wanted to create our own content and varied types of content. And we were so bold and ambitious that we wanted to create a portal that was so rich that when you came to our website, you would never want to go anywhere else. You had your news, you had your weather, you had whatever it may be, entertainment, shopping, all sorts of things. Uh, first live uh, radio shows and so on. So there were a few people and a few project managers and a few GMs who had a bit of budget to you know, throw some stuff against the wall to see what, what would stick. Um, and, and eventually through these external forces or, or the external studio who came and pitched to us, you know, they came to me and said, hey, these guys are, uh, what do you think about these concepts? Where do you think it would go? And I was like, go, go, go. Um, I think w the first time that it started to make sense to them, um, the, the, the extra steps that gamers would go to in order to have a decent connectivity. So this was uh, the very early 90s. We were talking about now 1991, maybe 92, um, in 56K V2. Uh, and I think ISDN had just come out as well. So what we were finding is that we had geographical pops throughout South Africa. Um, but, and we had game servers in Johannesburg and we had game servers down in Cape Town. And sometimes we would split and we would vary them. Um, so we would have like Quake in Quake 2 down in Cape Town and we had to have Half-Life Deathmatch in Johannesburg or, or so on. And then we started replicating them. But what we would find is that people in Cape Town would dial into the Johannesburg pop and make a long... It's not really a long distance call. It's not an international call, but it's a more expensive call. Uh, remember, when you're dialing in on a modem, you have to pay for your, the, the line that you're making. So these, the suits couldn't wrap their head around why somebody would be prepared to pay for a more expensive end portion of the line. And the reality was it was simply so that they could shave 10, 10 milliseconds off of their latency, off of their ping, because it ain't meaning a thing if you don't have that ping. Um, and there was, so being very isolated in South Africa, the only real dedicated servers anywhere um, in the world, we're either in Europe or within the States. And there we were taking about, about 2,000 milliseconds to, to, to ping those servers. Could you, could you for, for the audience, because unstable. you probably know more about servers than anyone we've talked to, which is great, because we, we, we kind of touch on it in so many different, different uh, conversations. Could you explain, for, for most people that may not be familiar with servers, what what what's the importance you're talking about pings in milliseconds why is that important to someone in esports if you're talking to someone that that hasn't thought thought about this a whole lot so it's everything and it's still something that hurts us today on the international on, on the international scene so basically it, it is your latency um, and it's how fast you are able to react if you if you want to compare it to uh, traditional sports um, whether it be football, or rugby, or cricket. Uh, okay, let's use cricket because I'm a great cricket fan. If you're batting and you're facing uh, a great Donald, a, a, let's say Alan Donald from my era or, or somebody like that, the time that the ball is released from his hand, you wouldn't see it. And, and things would, would absolutely completely disappear. So you were talking about, about fractions of a millisecond, which is everything if so especially in first person shooters so in first person shooters uh, in in a perfect world you well now it's probably around sub 50 but you want to get a sub 100 millisecond ping um if you are close to the server and you have let's say uh, a a sub 100 millisecond ping and you and I are playing together we're playing on, on a centralized server and you're at about 100, 150 and I'm at 300 plus if you and I see each other at the same time and we shoot each other we're talking about first person shooters your bullet will hit me before mine hits yours even though we've shot at the same time um, simply because the server receives the signal faster so it, it is absolutely everything. Um, uh, I, I know these guys who, um, 
who are very into Rocket League. Um, oh, they're, they're great guys and they create great content. Um, but they, and they have a, 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 a podcast um, and they talk about it fairly regularly and they tend to lose um, quite a few, few matches because they're 180 milliseconds too late. <laughs> uh, and that is the name of the podcast. They call their podcast 180 milliseconds too yes, late. Yes. Um, uh, so, so it's phenomenal. Now, is, is, the, is, that, is that delay, that latency, is it only because of the distance between your, where, where you are making the movement and where the server is that's, that's matching you up with someone else? A hundred percent. So previously, before we had dedicated servers, if we wanted to play locally, um, somebody would create a server within in the machine that they were playing. So it would it was called a, a listen server. So the the lucky guy who was running the server would have have a ping of zero, and he would just dominate everybody that sort of play, played against him. Um, and and I think that was why it was vital that in order to raise the game, so to speak that we did deploy these and, and we did manage them. Um, it, uh, it also became quite exciting. It was, only, it was only after we were doing this for a good 10 years that we actually managed to build um, the right listening tools uh, around the servers that we can start identifying who the gamers on our network were and how many there were and how many people from outside of our network were coming into our network specifically to play on the game. And this is from the ISP side, right? It's from, an, from the ISP side, yeah. So we were uh, one of the major uh, ISPs within South Africa. And uh, when we eventually, so again, like you say, a lot of these people were very agnostic about it and not really all that interested in it until we could start showing them that more than 50% of our base were playing on our game servers and that a good 30% of the traffic or 40% of the traffic that we were getting were from, from other networks, from other ISPs. Um, so then some, some of our very clever guys within technology um, and our CEOs grasped on this and... Um, in a nutshell, we use this as motivation to drive the price of the internet down in South Africa. Um, it wasn't only gaming. There were a few other things. So we had a lot of content within our network. And there, how um, networks all speak to each other is they are all connected on peering points. And there were two major peering points in South Africa that all ISPs would share their bandwidth and stuff on. But these peering points were very, very expensive. You, it would cost money for you to, to receive traffic or, 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 or to send traffic across these links. So what our very clever guys said was, let's stop doing this. If, we, if all ISPs can stop paying these exuberant fees around these peering points, we can actually lower the price and lower the barriers to entry and make this a lot easier for everybody. Um, so what we did is we said, peer with us for Share your content with us and we will share ours with yours. If you don't share your stuff for free, we are not no longer going to peer along these points. And we are going to, if you try and connect to our network, we're going to send you over our international links. So with us having the majority of the game servers and the majority of the, the online players, people who were not subscribed to us as an ISP, when they would come to play on our servers, they weren't getting those close to 100 millisecond pings anymore they were suddenly getting a thousand milliseconds or a thousand five hundred milliseconds because they even though they they may be sitting right next door to the server their traffic was then going to uh, to london and then all the way back um so we have we had two or three major subsea cables one going up the east coast and one going up the west coast um so we would simply push everybody around that. And it caused a major hubbub and a major outcry for, for, for quite a while. And it did two things. Um, number one, or one thing that we wanted it to do, um, is it made people put pressure on their networks to say, hey, we want to play on this stuff, peer with them for free, do, you know, take the offer that they're there. And those ISPs that they wouldn't, they started losing an awful lot of customers because people would abandon ship and then sign up with us so that they could get, gain access to it. So that was one of the first times after us um, really utilizing 
uh, influence and, and, and using outdated and old servers and second-hand servers to run all the stuff on. Then they started to see, oh, okay, hold on, maybe we should assign these guys a budget. You know, we were, then they recognized what a lost leader it actually was for the business. It may have cost them a few bucks as far as uh, uh, hosting those servers. And I think the only really money that it cost them was my sort of salary for about a good almost 10 to 15 years. Now we could actually start showing indirectly the funds that we were bringing into the business. Um, and also, I mean, the marketing opportunities that we had from that were great. You know, we became, yeah, I mean, we it, became a true customer-centric. You start, start showing, showing them the money, how you can make money at this. What, what I like hearing you talk about is that the organization was recognizing that there was this segment of the market that maybe they hadn't, you know, thought of starting out. And almost the same time you're doing all this, I'm working here in California for um, a huge computer manufacturer, Packard Bell. I mean, we were the biggest computer manufacturer in the world at the time in the, the, the mid-90s. We realized that th there were people that would pay double for a gaming PC. And we're like, oh, maybe we should be making more of these gaming PCs that the margins were so much higher. So um, what I want to hear now, is, it, maybe it's just a little bit, where, where, where does it stand now with servers? in South Africa, because we can talk about servers for two hours. I mean, this, uh, to me, this is really fascinating, but I don't want to take the whole time on that. But wh where, where is it today with servers and where do you think things are going with servers in your part of the world? Well, things have changed a lot. Um, in those days when we were doing this, the guys who would release a game. So we were talking about Quake 2 and Half-Life, for example. Um, the games industry itself has m had a major metamorphosis since then. You know, at those days, all they wanted to do was move boxes and sell the retail copies of the games. They didn't care what you did with it on, uh, online. Um, and it was, it was after seeing that there's longevity within the games and there's, there's, you could completely extend the, the shelf life of your game by, uh, bringing out new maps or bringing out new content within the games. Um, and there were quite a few people who were successfully able to host servers and rent out servers. And I think a lot of the, the game publishers and, and producers started realizing, hold on a second, we're leaving an awful lot of money on the table. Um, so the ability to do what we were doing by hosting said third-party servers has diminished uh, somewhat. Um, but here in, in South Africa, there are still a few uh, third-party independent, independent servers. Um, but with the proliferation of cloud services like AWS and the Azure infrastructure that have now uh, that we we that are hosted with, within well, not only South Africa throughout the whole of Africa, a lot of the 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 publishers and distributors they they care a lot more about what happens online with their title. Um, so they've taken a lot more of tighter control um, of it. So there, there are servers sort of available um, for the majority of the titles, um, well, mostly PC titles um, and some of the console titles. But very often what will happen is that you will join a local server, um, and this is specifically in the console space. Um, you will join a, a local server and you'll find that your lobby um, where you are doing all of the matchmaking is on a local server. But then when you actually move into the game and migrate and actually start playing, very often you don't know where that server is, you know, unless you're cleverly tracking your, doing a net stat on your traffic in the background or something. You don't always know where that traffic is going. Um, and very often those servers are still international. Um, so, yeah, I mean, the server infrastructure is there. Um, AWS have a wide variety of, of all of the major titles and so does the Azure stuff. So the access is there. The problem comes in when you want to play with everybody else, when you want to play on an international stage. You know, you're only, you're only ever as good as your weakest competition. Um, so we very isolated and ring-fenced here and kind of tend to play a lot with ourselves. We don't have as easy access to play on an evil playing or on a level playing field when we're playing in Europe or when we're playing in, in the States. 
hence the guys with the 180 milliseconds too late. Um, there's very, there's, there have been very interesting debates in the past on whether that whether it hurts us to have local servers because you know we sort of create our own meta within the games and are not literally following what a lot of the top teams are doing. But uh, hey, you've got to got to use what's available to you. No, I, I remember talking to some guys, um, some guys in Kenya talking about Rainbow Six Siege um, servers uh, that um, the publisher seemed to be more supportive of creating more localized. Uh, they were they were trying to get more servers in South Africa for them to use in Kenya because that was so so superior for what they than what they were doing. We we're also talking to some people in Zambia and just how tough it was to become a world class player. Now, for most of us, I mean, if 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 you're just if it's you me playing, it's it, that's one thing. But if you're trying to be a professional player on a world scale, I mean that that can make a huge difference. And if you're trying to grow it. Um, you know, I, I kind of like uh, Uganda as a destination because they're very sort of centralized within, within Africa. Um, you know, I, I'd like to see centralized servers that 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 uh, that doesn't cater for one particular country only. Um, I think the if we skip forward quite a bit, I think the most successful event that I ever executed was was with uh, ESL. Uh, I hosted the ESL. Uh, African Championships in 2006. Yeah, I see the T-shirt you still have. Um, yeah, um, I, I, I'm still very proud of it. It's probably the, the, the my crowning moment that I, I had within gaming and esports. So what we what we did is we isolated the whole of North Africa and we isolated the whole of Southern Africa, and all countries could could participate. So we had the Norths playing in isolation and the South playing in isolation, um, doing their online qualifications for a whole bunch of seasons. And then we took the best teams from the North and the best teams from the South and brought them together in a LAN environment and had, had a grand finals, which was absolutely fantastic. I think it was the first time that had ever been done. But I think one of the reasons why a lot of the game publishers and, and, and them used to ignore us is because we simply don't have the numbers. And, and it's still a problem that, that, that we're experiencing today. Um, you know, we can touch on this in a few points, but specifically what, what we're talking about here is why would they spend an awful lot of money in deploying these dedicated servers or spinning up some of these virtual machines, which are very, very costly? You know, why would they do that for a very small amount of players, which is really a tiny drop in the ocean compared to North America or Europe or, or within Asia? So one of my goals, what I was really trying to do at that time, and I still think is very valuable, is to combine Africa as a whole. I mean, Africa is a massive continent. And if we can lower the barriers to entry and get more people playing games with, within the African continent and, and start counting uh, Africa as a whole, I think we can start challenging some so, of those So that's, that's really um, interesting. How are you doing that? When you're saying you want to get more people involved in playing games. How do you do that? Absolutely. It's very, very difficult to do. Um, it's very, very difficult to do right now because um, the bubble sort of popped um, a little bit. We are, there are a few organizations who are sort of in the space for the right reasons, um, who are, and I say that, the right reasons uh, any entrepreneur who's trying to do this from a business will say that money is the right reason that's never been my driving force and my sort of motivation you know my motivation for wanting to do this was was to empower people uh, you know sort of give them the opportunities and the journey that i had um whether it's education or whether it's uh, social aspects or whether it's uh, representing your country at an international level and actually making money out of it um, there are there are some organisations. We have a few uh, like esports and gaming organisations in South Africa, um, but it tends to be they tend to be a little bit incestuous. They they we're all fighting for very small for this very you know same slice of the small small pie. Um, but there are people who are in this for the right reasons and trying to grow this as a whole, and who work with other organisations. Um, I think some of the countries that are, are, are rising up and starting to make a name for themselves um, and get involved in this. Look, 
South Africa was, ha, has been the leader in this for, for, for quite a few years. Sorry, my doggy wants to say hello. Shadow um, wants in there. Uh, um, <laughs> she wants in. So um, the guys in uh, Ghana, Kenya, uh, Nigeria, and, and Tanzania, and I think Uganda to a small degree, um, are, are really starting to create federations and, and get involved. Um, but primarily, I think what we need is we need a brand and we need the right sort of investors who don't want to ring fence and sit within one country. Um, and that is rather difficult to do unless you're a major international player. Um, so I, I personally think that we need, um, we need more infrastructure. Uh, we need to lower the barriers to, to entry because um, it is it, 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 you, you need a system or you need to be able to go to a cafe or you need to be able to go to a place that has um, these sort of facilities. Um, sorry, my dog is really, really... She likes the sound of your voice. <laughs> she thinks you're talking to her. She, she's a bit of an attention whore and she gets jealous when I'm talking to other people. So... Um, Okay, on your bed. Okay, hold on. Let yeah, me, sure, let me just sure. A second. Oh, sorry. That's okay. That's 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 what we call life. <laughs> so where were we? Um, so yeah, look, when I left the ISP space and went into the the media space, this was my objective. My objective was to grow gaming as a whole on the continent and start bringing all of these pieces together. Uh, and finally, we had an organization who wasn't only ring-fenced within, within one country. Um, we were very ambitious, and we were trying to revolutionize the TV game and the TV business w- within Africa. Uh, and my mandate was, was, was rather simple. Bring 24-7 uh, eSports TV channel to, to South Africa, which we did also through ESL, through some great negotiations, and then creating our own content, creating our own seasons of of esports content, and then the uh, the large goal was to start doing that within each of, of the countries, and then finding the right synergies to pull those all together. Um, you know, identifying and incubating the right talent, and really, you know, like your podcast is all about, creating opportunities, creating opportunities that weren't previously there, and that's not just for the athletes. And and it's I suppose another contentious debate. Uh, I, I say that they are athletes. But not just for the athletes and, and the players, also from the people behind the scenes. Um, that, that's one of the things that we keep hearing over and over again, and that's really good to hear. It's just all the other jobs that esports can create. It's like it's like thinking that the entertainment business is only acting. It's like no, that's that's the little no. piece that you see. It's everything that makes that happen is what is 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 what really creates the uh, the industry. The other thing that I think is is challenging is because you have all these different countries with sometimes you know, West Africa, different language, different cultures, and you're trying to, to bring them together. And it's sometimes easier said than done. What, what I wanted to talk about in a little more detail was when you're talking about media companies and you're talking about your experience working in ISPs, working in the tech side of things, but on the media side of things, do you think the media people um, were more um, interested in esports? Did they did they get the idea that esports is entertainment and there's content that they would like to have their hands on? Absolutely, definitely. Um, I, I think what our head of organization walked into a meeting. I was having a, a meeting with all of the the esports teams and and getting their input on on how they want the tournament structured and how payouts would work and so on. And this great guy, he walks into the into the meeting room and he says. Uh, I don't understand this business. I don't quite understand this game, but I know that there is something there and, and, and that's why I'm, I'm investing in this and, and why we're going to build this. Um, I, I think a lot of people have been turned onto it primarily because of the numbers that they see, um, whether that's for the, the prize pools that people are playing for. I mean, we see these ridiculous prize pools at, at the yes. Dota International yes. and... Uh, and, and, and so on and so forth. And also we see the, uh, the streaming rights and the advertising rights that, uh, um, that, that's being made on an international scale. 
Um, so yes, there's a there's definitely a, a lot of interest in there. Um, we've even had our local um, sports channels start uh, streaming some of the local events, and and, and uh, people are fascinated by it. You know, people who had never who had never even heard of it, they don't have the typical. You know, they're not gamers, they're not interested, and they don't have children or nephews who are constantly playing. You know, they're 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 sports people. So if you, when you're sitting watching your rugby and cricket channels on a Saturday afternoon and suddenly a game of Counter-Strike has been streamed on one of your sports channels and the guys were like, oh, what is this? And the amount of uptake in people who would sit and actually watch this and get hooked in it and then start getting involved in it was phenomenal. So yeah, I think the media people were, were definitely very, a, a lot more um, interested and in, in afraid to, to want to to get involved with this and, 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 and see where it would go and, and invest in it. Um, so yeah, the media guys, definitely. Um, but part of the, the, the issue really, again, comes down to the numbers. Um, whether you're hosting a tournament or whether you are trying to do this alone at home via streaming on Twitch or whatever it may be, you, your views is what's count. And, and while a lot of people are very enthusiastic about esports, we are not generating the, the right amount of views in order to make it viable for brands to continually throw money at it, um, which is, again, why I believe it's all about growth. It's all about getting into uh, underprivileged areas, about getting into uh, countries that, that uh, struggle with, with the dollar. You know, and, and, and creating access points um, and also creating, you know, having governmental assistance, creating um, development, develop, development structures um, in, instead of letting people just run out for themselves. But that's probably another whole... Well, yeah. One of the things also that, that <coughs> we talk about once in a while is the government, the government's role in esports because... That's something here in the U.S. That, that you don't even think about. I mean, the government does not have a role, does not play a role necessarily in, uh, in the esports world and in other places. That can be a big, big deal. I did want to ask you about numbers, which, which I think it always goes back to numbers, which I think is great. Are there sponsors? Are there advertisers that come on board there? Are the, do, do they get it? Do they understand that there's a market out there of, of, of a demographic that maybe they can't reach in a lot of other places? They are, um, and I think they're getting more and, and more, um, but they're not at a major level all that yet. Um, I think the largest investments that have happened uh, happened really with, uh, let me not name any names because I'm going to get into trouble, um, but there have been organizations in the past who have received uh, massive sponsorships in and making massive promises, um, and then those brands don't get the returns that they were promised, and that hurt them. You know, it hurt the brand, it hurt the the organisations, and it hurt us as a whole because a lot of them pulled back. Um, but but you know that's legacy, that's history, and and that has changed somewhat. There are uh, uh, brands who are getting involved in it. I mean, I think recently um, the there are. The guys who are offering uh, salaries once you can actually identify some sim races, they're prepared to pay them a, a nominal fee every month for like six months in order to be their, their racer. Um, a lot of the, um, my, my friends, and I think probably one of the, the nicest guys and, and the guys who, are, who have their heart in the right place, we have a, a, an esports organization here called ACGL, um, African Cyber Gaming League. And they run a few like small lightweight tournaments and you will win a couple of hundred bucks from your local pizzeria and those types of things, which I think is great. You know, it's, it's, you and I will probably want to play a game and we'll do it just for fun. But if there's a brand who's offering a pizza for the winner or a couple of hundred bucks or a t-shirt or so. It, it I think what, that's another thing it, it that we helps. keep hearing is that a hundred dollars can go a long ways. It's like, you know, if you're going to start, we're talking to people in India. Uh, who do tournaments in India, and they were like, you know, for what they do uh, an event Not in the U.S., they can do four in India, get that much of a bigger bang. 
So it's, uh, the uh, cyber African Cyber Gaming League. That um, Nick Holden is he is he part of it? Yes. Yeah, because we just talked yes. to him. Yes, uh, Nick Holden. We talked to him and, yesterday, in fact. Yeah. Oh, cool. Yeah, Nick Holden and Clint O'Shea, great guys. Um, a little bit of history there. When I was in 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 the ISP space and we were running tournaments and competitions, we were. Uh, I had eventually got a, got a bit of internal help and a bit of assistance, but we were a very skeleton crew. Um, and it was Nick, when he was very, very young, he was constantly coming to us and he had these great ideas. Um, and we sort of very graciously gave them our tournaments uh, and said, here, run our tournaments on our behalf, start your own sort of thing. Um, and they've sort of grown and mushroomed from there, and I'll always support them. I think they're fantastic guys. Um, so yeah, that's primarily where where they they've come that's, out of. That's a kind of story. And, and, and that's a kind of story I really like to hear because it's like because people are thinking, well, how do I make this stuff happen? And it's like, well, you just got to be be persistent, but also make make some good connections. Yeah, look, again, um, at the risk of repeating myself, I, I, they obviously need to form a business and they need to be able to make some money out of it. But they've always been the guys who are doing it for the right thing. Um, they, uh, Clint and Nick were the first guys to go and operate tournaments at their own costs um, and doing this within the schools or doing this in areas where people did previously didn't have, have access to it or really for the love of the game um, and, and, and not to grow their brand or something. It really was to have access um, and to be able to talk to these guys and, and give people uh, opportunities. I think the, the only question, the only thing that they wanted in return for doing that was to be able to give these guys a questionnaire and be able to do a survey. You can play in our tournaments, but we'd like you to answer us a few questions. And it was very basic things. Um, but it became really, really important. So, yeah, I, I mean, I didn't want to talk about brands or other entities or, or, or organizations in the space, but, but no, I so that's, that's, so any that's really good that to I hear. To... Another topic I want to cover here was mobile. Is mobile the future of esports in, in your part of the world? No, uh, it, it might be. Uh, it very might be throughout the whole of Africa. Um, we cannot deny the rise of revenue within the mobile gaming space. Um, but I don't think it drives esports as, as much as it does drive casual gaming. Um, and casual gaming from an end user and also casual gaming from a developer indie studio um, perspective. Um, also, we, we are definitely a mobile-first continent. Um, it's actually quite interesting. Uh, we've had our eyes opened when you walk through places. Um, we'd seen it in Rwanda. Where, I mean, we, have, we have economic uh, issues um, in South Africa, but there are countries that are a lot far off, worse off than, than we are and ever have been. And you can walk in, in some of these rural areas where they don't have running water, they don't have electricity, and people step out of the bushes and they've got brain spanking new iPhones. <laughs> so, so, yeah, I think it definitely lowers the barriers to entry. Um, and, and there have been quite a number of um, successful um, mobile tournaments, but... I don't know, maybe I'm just a little bit biased um, because I like playing on a big screen you know, and I like the controls and I like the, the tech that allows us to plug into that, whether it's streaming, whether it's capturing, whether it's uh, whatever it may be. And I think mobile is very limited as far as that is concerned. Um, there is certainly an avenue there, so maybe I shouldn't be uh, like all, all that naysaying about it. But when it comes to... When it comes to, to, to skill and playing stuff on a top level, I think, I think mobile for now will always be sort of the B leagues. No, it's good. No, it's interesting to hear because a lot of people have, have said this is your question. the opposite. That they think, oh, yeah, that it, yeah, mobile is. Uh, but it's interesting because, yeah, I, I have a hard time playing mobile. It's like, you know, I'm on free fire getting, getting beat. And I'm like, I'd, I'd much rather be on the Look, Xbox kind of thing. But it's just. Look, they. 
That really is my opinion. Um, I, I, I believe that a lot of the, 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 I hate to say it, but the youth of today who are growing up with the cell phones in their pocket, the ease of access to be able to play a game when you're sitting on a bus or waiting in a doctor's office or something like that makes it, makes it really easy and they become very, very adaptable. But when you look at the reality of the guys who are playing, whether it be uh, PUBG Mobile or whether it be COD Mobile or whatever it may be, the guys who are doing really well are not sitting on the touchscreen. You know, they may have a touchscreen device, but they've got controls and, also, and mice attached to it and all sort of things to give them in that sort of edge. And you'll, you'll never be able to... You're, you're, you're taking a, a, a platform which is supposed to be a level playing field and you're skewing it badly by giving yourself a major advantage by having decent controls rather than dragging your, your finger across the screen and, and, and so on. So, yeah, I mean, I, I, I don't want to shoot it out there. I think as, as mobile devices become more capable, um, there, there probably will be a few, a few more avenues. And I think as game as game designers and game developers start leveraging um, off their technology a little bit better, you know, one of the greatest things that I love about the space is that the greatest thing in games nobody knows about, and it could be just around the corner. You know, it really is a, a, a hub of innovation. So the next best thing sometimes, as much as uh, uh, we like to call ourselves visionaries and futurists, there are things that we simply can't predict. And if you look at the, like a prime example of that, the, the major games that are being played today, um, while they are now owned by AAA studios and major publishers, they didn't always come from there. Um, I think probably the, the, the largest first-person shooter, which is Counter-Strike, was a modification of Half-Life. Uh, and that was made by, by, by two men in their garage. You know, they literally hacked, hacked a, a Half-Life 1 and, and made their own mod on top of that, or Gooseman and oh, I don't remember who the other one is. So, yeah, even Dota, the Dota International that we were talking about earlier, with millions and millions of dollars in prize money, that is a modification of, uh, of a strategy game called Warcraft and a game. It also came from, like, like the garage. So... Potentially, we'll have some form of indie developer who who will innovate and come up with a new gaming genre or a new concept that could potentially take the world by storm that doesn't work as efficiently on consoles or or, or PCs. So the innovation that comes from the the indie studios and the indie games sort of excites me quite quite a lot. Um, you know, a triple A studio for them to release a title. A lot of people outside of the, outside of this space, so to speak, don't realize the the energy, the effort, and the work, and the money that it takes to create a game. We're talking about hundreds of thousands of hours. We're talking about millions of dollars. We're talking about studios with development teams of fifty guys and twenty artists. Those sort of games cannot afford to fail. You spending millions and millions of dollars in three years of R and D, and then you release a title which flops and people don't buy, you're gonna hurt. So what the 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 major industry tends to do is they repeat yes, the same thing over safe. and over and over. They find something that works, and they, so the the innovation in, I think will probably always come from the smaller smaller studios, the, people who can afford to sort of. You're take the second the person here that's. Uh, come up with the idea that there's going to be something big in the future that we don't know about now that, that has the potential to change everything. And I, I think that's a great, you know, a great way to look at it. A uh, couple of, of, of last questions here. Um, what platform do people play uh, esports on there? You mentioned Twitch. Do people use Twitch? Do they use Facebook gaming? Do they use YouTube gaming? Is there any, anything that's particularly Oh, you mean specifically? Yeah, for, for the people that you know that play, play, or that what? Where do people? Um, look, so, so people tend to stream a lot to Twitch because there is a massive audience there. Um, and you have the ability to maybe strike some lightning in a bottle and, uh, and, and have a viral moment. And it's easy for people to sort of onboard. 
But the viewing experience for Twitch isn't all that fantastic here. Um, a few people have uh, deployed like local hosts and local servers but, uh, and relays. But the experience as a whole for watching Twitch is quite laggy for us down here. Um, so I, we certainly uh, give them a few million or 100 million hits uh, every month. But it, 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 it is, uh, I think a lot of the guys are primarily using uh, Facebook. Um, when I was executing ESL in 2017, we were using Facebook a lot. Um, and the reasoning for, for that was a lot of the now emerging countries within Africa, to them, Facebook is the internet. Their only access comes through Facebook. If it doesn't on Facebook, they're not going to click out to anything else. You know, to them, Facebook is the internet. So for us to reach a core audience, it was um, it was vital that we did that. We also had we also had the luxury of um, terrestrial television, uh, which was spread throughout uh, uh, Southern Africa or Sub-Saharan Africa, I, I should say. And a lot of these uh, TV channels would have dead airspace. You know, they didn't run twenty four seven. So we had the ability to pick up certain times within their spectrums, and we would just push out stuff after, after the fact, you know, on, on this dead airspace. Um, so, you know, we, we changed the game with, as far as the amount of views. I don't think anybody has come close to, to having the viewership and stuff that we did back in 2017. But eventually they will get there. So, yeah, I mean, Twitch is there. Uh, YouTube is there. But, but uh, if you want to reach a, a mass audience within Africa for now, uh, well, it was uh, up until a year or so ago, it was definitely Facebook. I don't know um, how that has changed within the last, say, 18 months or so. You know, there's been quite a large shakeups with, with, with big tech. Um, I don't know directly um, if that has had a knock on effect within the rest of Africa as no, yet. It, um, it, but who knows? Here. The, the, the very last question that we ask everyone here should the Olympics include esports? Why, yes. why or why not? So, yes, uh, I, I would certainly like to, to see it included within the Olympics. Um, when I was in the media space, one of my under-the-table objectives was to always identify and incubate talent within a particular country. Um, well, let me paint a scenario for you. I, I, I like telling stories. L let's picture somebody in whatever it may be, let's say a Rwanda, who is not potentially physically gifted and his brother plays soccer and he's a complete football soccer fanatic, but he doesn't have the physical skills in order to do that. But he has the mental acuity too. And through, at, at, at that stage, I wanted it to be us. But, you know, if we had deployed guys being able to play uh, virtual soccer or play uh, um, a soccer within a game within in that club, when we can identify and incubate that talent and then eventually have this guy playing, representing his country on an international level at an Olympic sort of uh, state where he is now making enough money to support himself and support his whole family. Like you were saying, the dollar is not an equal spend throughout the whole of Africa and what may be just a pizza for us may be a pizza for a whole month for a family there. So, you know, so to, to me, I think there are, there are an awful lot of opportunities and yes, I would love to see it. I think part of the, the issue that we have is the majority of games um, that are drawing the numbers and are drawing the, the, the people who watch it have an age restriction attached to it and normally for a very, very good reason. Um, so it becomes complicated on how you broadcast that and, and, and who you can, can show that to. Um, they also, in the last couple of years, the genres have sort of changed. I mean, we all know about Fortnite and PUBG, you know, which is the battle royale genre. Um, now, the battle royale genre, for those who, who don't know, um, in its pure basic form, uh, you have, let's say, 100 people who are dropped in a particular environment and it's survival of the fittest. You know, everybody takes each other out until there's one poor guy left standing and that, and that is the winner. And that's, you know, it, it, it's an it's, it's awful lot of fun to play when it get, gets down to the crunch. 
Um, it can be a little exciting. But there's so much happening around all of the maps. Um, from a production perspective, it's really difficult to tell stories. It's very difficult to predict where the action is going to be. Uh, you talk about the jobs that, that happen behind the scenes that a lot of people know about. Everybody knows about shoutcasters. Everybody knows about uh, on-screen talent and, and that. But I mean, one of the most challenging and, and difficult roles is to be the cameraman within that game. You know, you, you, being able to identify what is going to happen and when. Sometimes it's like catching lightning in a bottle. Um, so from a production perspective, it may be a little boring for to watch guys run around a map for the first half an hour or whatever it may be. So there, there are there are a few obstacles and stuff and things that are going to happen in 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 the way. Um, but there are more traditional sporting uh, titles that are doing uh, really well, which could potentially take its place. It may not have the same amount of 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 players and numbers. Oh, that's very very debatable, actually. That's very, very debatable. If I talk about... So FIFA was a massive title throughout the whole of Africa. And you will often... You will bump into people who go, Oh, yeah, I have a, a console and I play FIFA, but I'm not a gamer. I'm a football enthusiastic and I just play FIFA because I like playing football. Um, so, yeah. Uh, again, I don't know if it needs to be directly within the Olympics or as, a, as an Olympics of esports or like an offshoot of it. But we, we've, had, we've had people like play in the space and try to do it. I know the X Games were uh, brought in Call of Duty and had a few. But again, it's all you have to monitor who you're broadcasting that to because it's an age restricted title and you can't just simply put that out in an, in an all ages channel. We're doing esports activations with Disney down the street here. And it was just like <laughs> most of the titles. Like no no you can't you, we didn't even take those to Disney Close I mean, it, that was not going to fly and there's a guy that lives literally two houses down from me here his job is creating maps for Fortnite so he makes Fantastic. really good money by just I mean someone's got to create the maps and he's really good at it mm -hmm. so that this you know who would have thought uh, but maybe my favorite job of all time that I've I've heard recently is a drone operator. At a tournament event, it's like to to do the drones inside the uh, the arena. It's like that that would be great. Hey, I'm I'm gonna wrap up here because I could, I could keep talking for forever and it uh, and we've kind of uh, gone through our allotted time here. Hey, I really appreciate your time here. It was great to hear your take on esports, especially esports, the media, tech, cables, servers. All that was really really good. Where can people find you online? Uh, thanks, Tom. So probably the easiest place to get hold of me is is on LinkedIn. Um, uh, Brad Kirby on LinkedIn, you'll see my pretty face and wearing this T-shirt. Um, yeah, I, I do. I've taken a little bit of a, a hiatus from social media of late. Uh, I certainly recognize its value and I will always utilize it within a business or an organization to amplify uh, content, but personally, I, I, I've sort of moved moved away from it. So, yeah, if anybody wants to get hold of me and 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 discuss these sort of topics, which I'm always open and really willing to do, Brad, Kirby, great. We'll put a link in the in the show notes here. I invite everyone to subscribe to the podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. Follow us on social media. That way, you'll hear be notified when our next episode is available. We're going to be talking to more esports entrepreneurs around the world on how they create jobs and how jobs are created. And we have some really great guests, just like Brad, coming up that you will not want to miss. Thanks for listening. Thanks, Brad. Thanks, Tom. Thanks for anybody who listens. I appreciate it. Being an evangelist, I could talk about this until... The great. Good. That's, that's, that's why they invented podcasts. This yeah, is the Gamers Change Lives podcast. Thanks, Play games, create jobs, change lives. Thanks for listening.